It is my pleasure to welcome to the stage Melanie Manshow. Melanie Manshow is an artist and filmmaker. She makes photographs, film, video, and sound to explore individual and collective identities. Performance to camera, reconstruction and participation, as well as location-based research, are recurring methodologies in her work. Single-screen video works and multi-channel installations operate on the cross-section of documentary and narrative fiction to investigate how fact, storytelling, and observation offer strategies for speaking about our shifting place in an increasingly mediated world. Mancho has just completed her first feature film, Stephen, commissioned by Liverpool Biennial, where it will be shown as an installation from June 2023, and shown in its entirety at Sheffield Docks Fest in June. Selected recent solo exhibitions, Dancing is the Best Revenge, at Merkisches Museum, Witten, Germany, and Alpine Disco Mix in, at Paraffin in London. Melanie is one of the four artist commissions for Sea Change, which is taking place until the end of May at the Royal Docks, curated by Invisible Dust. The moving image work was made in collaboration with a cross-generational group of female Dockland residents and explores the location, long history of female protest. From suffragettes to the Dagenham Ford strikes, Manshow explores female labor rights and the legacy of women's fight for equality and the ways in which these historical struggles resonate in today's world. Until the late 20th century, women were not allowed to work on moving vessels due to widespread superstition about women's presence on merchant and military vessels, being bad luck that could spell disaster. The tiller, which is on view at Thames Maria Park, shows a cross-generational group of women filmed on a flotilla of differently-sized boats and ships on the nighttime waters of the Royal Docks. Standing at the bow, the protagonists become radiantly illuminated by pools of light, while the flotilla itself is seen like a procession, gliding through the waters towards the city of London lit up in the distance. The work pays particular attention to the possibilities of improved urban futures, where the dilemmas of capitalist imperatives are tempered by care, solidarity, and sustainability. Melanie will now give a presentation on her work and her broader interest in storytelling. So over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to be here today and speak about the work that was commissioned for Sea Change and to give it a little bit more context. Um, and there were a number of questions that were posed to me and that we will also explore a little bit in conversation, which is what stories are we telling about the future of the planet? Who are we listening to? And who has a voice? And I think in particular this question of who has a voice is important generally, it's important to art, it's important to me. And I will speak to that um, through a number of works. I will show Flotilla as the entire piece because it's only um, just under seven minutes long. It is also in Thames Barrier Park, projected in a small pavilion. Um, and if you see it there, you probably see it even better because it's dark and it's, it's sort of inhabiting a space. Um, I will also show a brief section of a work that I made last, that was completed last month called Liquid Skin, and I'll speak to that. And I'll also show a trailer of a feature film which will, as Mala said, uh, launch a Liverpool Biennial and at Sheffield Dock Fest called Stephen. And the trailer, um, gives you a little bit of an insight into much bigger work, and I'll speak to that too. But to answer those questions that were posed to me, um, I want to also kind of bring in another, maybe wider kind of term called fabulation. And storytelling, narrative, um, narrative ideas, 
to me, kind of always relate to this notion of fabulation. And I'm sure there's probably people in the audience here who know much more about fabulation than me. But I think this idea of fabulative storytelling is maybe broadening out this term storytelling. Um, and it questions what kind of, what, what, what does storytelling in visual art actually mean? And in some ways, as artists, we, we speak through all sorts of languages that are not necessarily involving words. And I think storytelling can be much broader than what we commonly see, as, assume stories to be. Um, the idea of, story, of fabulation is particularly relevant, I think, to art and art making into this time, into this specific time, because there's a connection between fabulation and the dynamics of becoming. And there's like various kind of philosophers and theorists who've talked a lot about this idea of a people to come and this notion of becoming. To me, that also links very deeply to this notion of multiplicity. And a lot of the work I make across all the different media speaks to this, this tension between our individual and collective identities. And in particular, that we all are multiple. I think that's something I feel very strongly about, that we are not defined by a specific, essential identity. We all have multiple versions of ourselves that we play out towards a different kind of community, situations, um, times that we live through. And we all draw on this kind of multiplicity within us and necessarily benefit from it. So fabulation definitely speaks towards this, towards this dynamic of becoming and to the dynamics of multiplicity, and hence also to ideas on the future of being. So one way of talking about fabulation is as a profound fiction at the heart of the real. And I think there's a real problematics at the moment to do with this notion of the real and how we kind of maybe identify different forms of reality. And in the first panel today, and maybe we can come back to that throughout the day, the question of truth was raised a number of times. And I think it's a very difficult term. Um, so if we then think about truth and reality as these really unreliable notions, I think we maybe have a different way of thinking about fabulation as a way forward to think towards these unreliable concepts. So perhaps one could suggest that there's an ethics and a politics of art and to art and to the making of art and a relationship between art and its voices in relation to the societies it is made within and a voice in relation to time and space, to location and process. And I think it is a very urgent question to ask over and again, who has got a voice to speak and what that voice might sound like. So the first um, clip I would like to show you is Flotilla. Um, it's just about six and a half minutes long and we'll watch it in total and then I'll speak a little bit more about that work. So if we could have that clip now, please. When we first started talking about the commission for this um, season, before we even got into any research, I had this image in my head of women on the water, on boats, at night, in the docks, without any explanation. It was just something that came to me. And then very quickly, doing a little bit of research, I came across what Mala already alluded to, this, um, in a sense, dual history. On the one hand, the docks have this incredible 
history connected to the labor movement, to women's liberation, to various forms of protest. So a lot of protest has taken place right here, from the kind of suffragettes, um, Eleanor Marx being really involved in the docks and around here in the struggle for women's liberation. The Fort Dagenham strikes, the match girls, the, the, the sugar girls, it all took place here. And it's partly because, of course, it is such an industrial landscape and was very much marked by the factories in which women worked. So then the next step, when I looked into women being on the water, and then you come across this fact that until the 1990s, women were not allowed to work on moving vessels because of this huge myth, hence again, storytelling and the stories we tell and the right or wrong stories we tell ourselves to keep ourselves in place. It's sort of like suddenly we're like, oh, so this idea had sort of makes sense. There is a, a history to back it up. And all the work I do, whether it's here or any of the kind of projects I work on, is very often, most of the time, based on very long location-based research. The locations really inform me quite deeply, and I really think about the locations for which work is made and the context in which it is produced. So again, spending a lot of time in the docks um, in the lead-up to filming the work informed more and more the kind of like the history that this particular kind of complicated history and the complicated stories um, resonate within the work that we've just seen. But the work, in a sense, is quite loose. You could watch this work without knowing all these kind of stories. Um, and it speaks through images and sound, but without any words. Um, I now want to show you a very, very short clip um, from a piece of work I made in Germany, which was just completed and literally went on show a week ago um, in the Ruhr Valley in Germany. And the Ruhr Valley in Germany is equally bound, like the docks here, by industry. It's coal mining. And the demise of the coal mining industries there have marked that, that sort of big stretch of land. It's like the LA of Germany, so these interconnected cities um, very, very deeply. But coal mining in this country, as much as in Germany and elsewhere, is extremely male-dominated. And so the stories that are being told in that particular region speak to the heroism of the men that have worked the mines, that have been um, working underground for many, many, many generations, but it never speaks about women. And like the women that have never been on the boats and who've been written out of the history, these women in the Ruhr Valley have also been written out of histories. Um, and it's really interesting that I think there is a time right now where these kind of histories and the kind of storytelling that have led to particular kind of inequalities and disrespects um, are being redressed. So there is a foundation that is currently, that was founded in September 2022, and interestingly, is dedicated to rewriting the history of women on boats because they recognize that there's been um, a big uh, mistelling of a story. So the same in Germany, where I made this work called Liquid Skin, made with 10 women who take us um, through particular locations. They're all women who work at night, um, very much, again, pointing to the Industrial Revolution, to the beginning of night work and shift work that informed the kind of work underground and um, in the coal mines. These are 10 women who, at, the mo at this moment in time, all have nighttime jobs, from um, a nurse, a bakery, um, to an engineer who works on nighttime, big building sites, to a pole dancer. And they take us through 10 locations that are all marked by night work. So if we could have that clip, it's a very, it's a very short one minute clip. The actual work is 20 minutes long, uh, filmed as, in each case, two minutes, very long walking shots. But I'm showing you a very, very short clip of it. 
So in this work, um, 10 different locations that are marked by night work is explored and we're guided through by these 10 different women. And these locations all connect through economics, through politics, um, through the, the labor that is enacted within them. And these women are all guides in, in that they kind of, they're all local women, same as the work here, which was made with local women that are all resident and working in the docks. Um, the reason why, it's interesting to me that I've at this point of time come, in a sense, come back to working with women. And I'm sort of questioning myself why my own history in terms of the early work that I've made was all about working with women. And I do come from a very strong history of working with feminist discourses, but then that had sort of, for a while, I've worked with lots of groups and communities, and I've just literally this year, for some reason, for some reason, have come back to making a lot of work with women. And I was in a conversation with an artist in Germany last week, and I said, I'm not quite sure why, and we both agreed that I think it's because there is a renewed necessity to speak about these inequalities and to yet again point to why histories need to be retold in particular ways and that there's still inequalities that pertain to gendered labor and to, to gendered life. And maybe that is something that also then speaks to the future of being and the future of becoming. Um, the last clip that I want to show goes in, um, well, it, it relates to, it's a trailer for a feature film. It's the first feature film I've made. And it's a story I've been working on for close to seven years. Um, and I've been working with one particular person, um, in this case a man, who I've known for about 10 years and who I met when he came into full recovery from having lived a life of addiction. And it's a film that um, addresses addiction, recovery, and ways of being, and the multiplicity of ways of being through differential storytelling. It uses both fiction and documentary. It uses archive and observation and tells multiple stories within both within one person who is there as himself, as the real person that he is called Stephen, as a persona where he plays near versions of himself and as a fictional character called Thomas Goody. The film was made with a mixed cast of four, uh, um, four actors and 20 people in addiction recovery who all take on supporting roles within the film. And if we have time, what I'm really interested in this film is not just that it's a feature film that has kind of urgent social issues in it, it's absolutely a film also that in, the, in its making, in the process of being made, creates new stories. I'm absolutely convinced that filmmaking is a really important tool, particularly in relationship to mental health, because it allows people to tell stories differently and to see themselves differently. I come back to that, but maybe we can run that last clip now. Thank you. You're gambling again, aren't you? No. No, I'm not. There's no shame in admitting it. There's no shame in asking for help. Here's... Everything all right? Stephen? Yeah, sorry. My mum was not Oleg. My brother, my middle brother, our Carl. He had problems with drink and with drugs as well. Everything was always to do with money. I can't bear money and I thought of money because, uh, like, it was just a stress from when I was a kid. 
If you don't like being labelled, well, you do something about it and you change yourself and that's why we're here. So, you know, you can't pretend, oh, I'm not an addict. I just, I just go to groups where there's loads of addicts and sit around talking with them. My name's Stephen Giddings and I'm here today to audition for the role of Thomas Goody. you know do you know that it starts with this moment do something different so it's obviously too short a time to really go into the um, all the details of this film um, but just very briefly like I said I've been working with the same person for about 10 years I've known him for a very long time it's about his life the real life that he's leading and the changes he's made the huge transition she's made in, in the space of a number of years. Um, it's a film about Liverpool and different recovery communities in Liverpool, and the film is based on the first film ever made in Liverpool, which is a BFI archive film, which you see in the film itself, called Arrest of Goody, which um, is about the real story of a person called Thomas Goody embezzling 170,000 pounds from the Bank of Liverpool, where he is a clerk. That's about 22 million in today's money. And when I was looking and researching for a film that was really about Liverpool, where Stephen is from and where the entire community I'm working with is from, I came across this archive film. And again, it's like a lot of location research. Um, I was fascinated by the story. And then you dig a little bit under the surface and then realize and come across the information fairly quickly that this historical character embezzling that amount of money was a gambling addict. And so this became really interesting to me because I'm working with a group of substance addicts. And they are reimagining, retelling, and restoring a story from 1901 from their own perspective as substance addicts becoming and working through ideas of gambling addiction. And just very briefly, the reason this is so important to me is that gambling addiction is one of the fastest rising addictions, both in this country and internationally. It's dangerous because people don't see it and because you know, outwardly, um, they can, everything seems normal and it seems okay. You're not, you're not drunk, you don't have a needle um, in your arm. But the, the devastation it leads to for the people who are addicted, but also for their families and for the wider environments and the communities that they're in is absolutely devastating. Um, so we've got a little bit of time together to kind of go through some questions, but I wanted to finish with one quote that also maybe goes back to the question of storytelling, um, and because it clearly relates to my own thinking that art has an important social and political function, that works of art are important critical reflectors 
and languages to think towards the future. So the quote is, a work of art opens a void, a moment of silence, a question without answer, provokes a breach without reconciliation, where the world is forced to question itself. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. It's wonderful to see all three films um, and to see Flitterler again. Um, and as you've touched on when you've talked about the films, each three does have this historic connection and hidden stories. So I wanted to kind of start with a question about your relationship between historic narratives and performance. So a lot of the work that I make is very research-based and heavily, heavily influenced by research into different kinds of histories. Um, and at the same time, I have a very profound interest in the kind of physical gestures that allow us to speak and allow us to um, maybe give evidence of who we are. And I think as individuals, we are deeply bound by the kind of relations we enact. And these relations are towards other human beings, towards other beings that are non-human to places and to objects. So I think it, we are inherently relational. And hence the kind of performance that we enact over and over towards others and towards the lives that we live are ways of speaking the place that we have in the world. And I think that is inevitably always informed by the sort of wider historical narratives. But I do also feel, and again, that goes maybe back to some of the um, two previous presentations is that we are also inherently unreliable narrators. Thank you. And that narrator function as well, you touched on it a lot in your introduction, but I think it's really interesting to, to look at why storytelling is important in your practice as well as you, you mentioned fabulation and maybe you could talk a bit more about these different kinds of storytelling that you do do in your films. So I think fabulation is an interesting concept because it always points to this um, unreliability and to flux and to constant becoming. And I think um, maybe what history and this also this, for me, complicated notion of truth um, is problematic and troubling is that it assumes that there's a stability. And I think there isn't a stability. I think we are unstable. Um, I think the stories we tell are unstable. The versions of ourselves we produce are constantly evolving. So I think also, you know, I mean, I'm probably preaching to the converted, but I think we all know that um, the way we retell history is also a way of making it palpable to ourselves and that it allows us to kind of constantly rethink and modulate our ways of being in the world. And maybe that, and then, and it'd be good to have a wider discussion on that with all of you and with the other panels, um, why these retellings allow us to think towards the future, which we have to. Definitely. Um, I think I have time for one last question, then I'll open up to the floor for this wider conversation. Um, and you've spoken a lot about the voices who don't get, get heard. And I think that comes into these like hidden stories about local women. And why do you think these hidden stories are important to tell in order for us to renegotiate our future? Even though we have been working towards kind of equalities for a long time, we do arguably live still in a very strongly authored patriarchy. And the, the idea that equality has been achieved, I think, is a fallacy. I think there's still a lot of room for us to 
do a lot more protest and a lot more work that needs to be achieved for these kinds of equalities, whether they're gendered equalities, um, race equalities, um, equalities between different species and non-human species. I think there's a huge work that comes through these ideas of post-humanism um, where a new materialism where the sort of exceptionalism that we assume to be our right is challenged. And I think all these challenges are really important to take on if we want to think towards futures that allow all of us, and that doesn't mean just humans, but wider species to live on this planet together. Thank you so much, Melanie. And if we have any questions from the audience. Hi, thank you for that, Melanie. That was a really great presentation. And I think there might be some, um, there's some interesting parallels with our societal addiction to carbon. Um, but the question I wanted to ask was actually to Marla, if it's okay, which is um, in terms of the, the artists that you commission and you work with and your programming, it, does Invisible Dust have a theory of change in terms, because you're commissioning around climate change and you're clearly wanting to intervene in the climate crisis, so is there a strategy and a theory of change in the way that you commission? Big question. <laughs> I think we work with a lot of different artists in different stages of their careers, and I think it's important to choose artists like Melanie, who's worked in the field in a long time, and work, and also artists, for example, um, the commission was showing at lunchtime, who haven't had the opportunities um, on the wider global stage, like Arts and Science Africa, uh, Films Africa, it, that change between allowing new voices, but also really championing the strong voices who we've had in our field for a long time. But I don't know if that answers your question. I guess that's a response in terms of, almost in terms of artist development, which is really important, but in terms of what you're wanting to put out into the cultural sphere that might help us socially, as a society, shift from the trajectory we're on, which is, you know, heading towards various planetary tipping points. I'm wondering what your thinking is about that in terms of the way that you commission. I'm going to hand it to Alice, because she's better placed to answer that. Yeah, I mean, theory of change is a particular way of looking at things and it's about feeding in things that we learn each time that we work with the next project so we do a lot of work where we're actually working because we always work in partnerships so we're working with museums big cultural festivals cities of culture and one of our things is to build in into that process a learning process for the people we work with because we've worked with artists and scientists for many, many years. And uh, for, for example, Melanie's commission is uh, done in collaboration with several academics at UCL. And that's something that we've got a real expertise with. So what we do is we build it into each of the projects we're doing. And so the next project will then learn from the project before. So we're very much interested in this kind of, those kind of lining. On the other side, we do quite a lot of work about behavior change and climate change, which is probably what you're getting at as well. And we did a lot of work, a lot of evaluation on all our projects from the artist's perspective, from the community perspective, from the different audiences' perspectives. So it'd be something I'm very happy to chat to you about for the future, but that is definitely the way that we've always worked. From a, from a long time. Thanks. The, I really um, love your films, Melanie. Amazing. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the sound. There's some similarity across them, and it's really, it's really rich and great. Yeah, I'd like to hear more. Thank you. Great question. Um, and I would l love as many of you as possible to see the work in the park because the sound is so much better there. Um, so the sound here is a tiny bit compromised, if I'm honest. Um, the sound in Fertilla is all sound that is nautical. 
And I wanted the sound to really evoke the spaces and the locations um, that are traversed by these women on boats. And there is obviously that, I had a long conversation with one of the women um, on a, one of the boats. Women until the 1990s were only allowed on moving vessels as figureheads. So as these kind of like strange sculptures, sculptural protrusions that are at the front of the ship. So hence these women here also at the front of the ship. And one of the women works on um, the Katisag. She's one of the main um, curators on Katisag. And so we met there and talked a lot about sound. So the ship horns, bells, boy bells, um, anchors, um, chains. So it's all sounds that come from ships and water. And I then make sound designs for, um, for flotilla in this case. The one in Germany, Liquid Skin, um, we recorded, it's all field recordings, so they were made at the time, a lot of them with contact mics that we attached to the steelworks, to the techno club, to the bakery, to the machinery, and recorded the, in a sense, record a portrait of each location. And then these sonic portraits I then work with and make a sound design, and that's what then makes up the soundtrack. This is a question for Melanie. I was really uh, intrigued by um, the way you represented women in your film, or the way you capture them in motion, uh, in particular the first two films about women uh, from a particular community. And um, so um, in the coal mining uh, film, you were capturing them always moving and never stationary. Um, in the film from the dock here, uh, women were stationary, but they were moved by the ferry. So, and it just sort of made me think about that German film, uh, Run, Lola Run, and she's just constantly running in the film. Um, was there sort of particular conscious decision around that sort of way of representing women? Yeah, again, it's a really great question. Thank you for that. Um, <coughs> Research into film, the history of film, informs all I do. And um, the film in Germany in particular is very strongly influenced by two films, both called Elephant, um, one by Gus van Sand, one by Alan Clark. And they are films where we follow, and they're filmed on Steadicam. Um, we follow people through different kinds of locations. And we quite often follow them as in we're behind them, and then we swing around and we're being, so it's a push and pull. And so I wanted these, um, so Elephant, the Gus Van Sand film is based on the Columbine shooting in America and is set in a school. Um, the first one, Elephant, is in the 1970s and deals with the, the, the Northern Irish troubles. And in both cases, there are films that, what, what I find really interesting about it is that the camera is, is being pulled and pushed by the protagonist, so it's their motion that defines the, the visual, the quality and the speed of what we, what we get to see. The film in Germany also, I mean, it's quite subtle, but it's filmed on infrared. And so infrared is night vision and um, is giving us all those waves, visual waves that, we, that our eye can't pick up. And for me, that's quite symbol symbolic in a sense for kind of pointing to everything that we don't see. So sort of suggesting that we should look into the spaces that we don't normally visually have access to and by implication, expand our, our field of vision. So that was the idea about using infrared and having these kind of like long tracking shots. 
Um, here, the, the moving vessels, I think it was so important that they're moving because that was the whole prejudice against women being on moving vessels. So I needed them to move through the waters um, of the Royal Docks. And I think, I mean, I, I'm expanding your question a little bit. Nighttime, both the one in Germany and here are filmed at nighttime. And that's partly because nighttime is still a very different time for women in particular. Um, both in the sense that it's, I mean, the nighttime has, it's a, it's, again, it's sort of, it's a, um, it has a different visuality, but also it bears many dangers. And that is something that I wanted to pay attention to. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Melanie, so much for joining and sharing your film so generously with us all.